You seek the key, but first you must learn the ways of precision, craft, and performance with Acura's all-electric ZDX. With a premium Bang & Olufsen sound system, up to a 313-mile range and a Type S variant, with an estimated 500 horsepower, the ZDX is their most powerful SUV yet. Unlock the energy when you visit Acura.com to order yours today. Okay, let's do some quick math. The less your business spends on operations, on multiple systems, on delivering your product or service, the more margin you have and the more money you keep. That's obvious. But with higher expenses on materials, employees, distribution, and borrowing, everything costs more. To reduce costs and headaches, smart businesses are graduating to NetSuite by Oracle. Here's the thing. Information is power. Information is money. Literally, the currency of today's world of, of entrepreneurship is information. And if you could bring all of the, your, the information about your business into one dashboard, this is incredibly valuable. NetSuite is the number one cloud financial system, bringing accounting, financial management, inventory, HR into one platform and one source of the truth about your business. With NetSuite, you reduce IT costs because NetSuite lives in the cloud with no hardware required, access from anywhere. You cut the cost of maintaining multiple systems because you've got one unified business management suite. And you're improving efficiency by bringing all of your major business processes into one platform, slashing manual tasks and errors. This is so valuable. You just hit a button and you can see all the information about your business instead of having to like call five different departments and get all these emails and put it all together and make sense of it. Over 37,000 companies have already made the move. So do the math. See how you'll profit with NetSuite. Backed by popular demand, NetSuite has extended its one-of-a-kind flexible financing program for a few more weeks. Head to netsuite.com slash james. netsuite.com slash james. netsuite.com slash james. This isn't your average business podcast, and he's not your average host. This is the James Altucher Show on the Choose Yourself Network. Today on the James Altucher Show. The key is, I don't care how shitty the place is, and I don't care how many people are there. The difference between pros and everybody else is, you don't get nervous, and you don't get lackadaisical. You get excited every time before you get up. You come in, you look at the room, you look at the people, and you build up some excitement inside yourself before you set foot out there. That's the key to everything, excitement. So so do you think this kind of intense environment that you were growing up in, do you think this helped with that crowd yeah. work which got you ready for the talk show? You know what helped? My old man was great, man. Uh, my mother was the father and my father was the mother. My mother would kick the shit out of us at any given opportunity, you know what I mean? My father, different story. Come and talk to me. And uh, my father allowed us to say anything we wanted. Like from the, I'm not kidding, from the time we were five, my old man was say anything you want. You know, don't swear at the table, but this dinner table is for talking. You can say anything you want. And when you got three brothers, and you're competing for your two minutes of conversation time with your dad, 
it becomes a free-for-all, you know? And that's where it happens. You're Jewish, right? Yeah, yeah. Yeah, you don't even know. <laughs> like, I've talked to a lot of comics. Leary, too. He comes from an Irish family. And he said, that dinner table on Sunday night, man, you got the hook. It was the first place you got the hook. Like, if your mother and father turn and say, shut up. And your brother's got the stage now, you failed. That's what it was. It was like a comedy club. So he asked me to do it as a favor. Well, we're not on it. Maybe I should tell you when we're on. I'll tell you when I interview We're on. You. Are we on? Yeah, yeah. So two weeks ago, I opened for uh, Randy Bachman, Bachman Turner Overdrive, and the Guess Who, in a place called Grand Bend. I don't know. It's like the Martha's Vineyard of Canada. So this guy's So it's paying, like the Bronx. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> so this guy's paying uh, Randy Bachman 50 grand U.S., and the place holds 500 people, and it's 40 bucks a ticket. It's the same business model as you have: 120 people, 10 bucks a ticket, 30 grand a month rent. <laughs> I don't know how you do it. Well, I I don't know. As a, an owner of this place, I could say, do not invest in a comedy club right. ever. <laughs> so this guy pays Randy to come. Randy's there with his son Ty, who's had a couple of hit songs. So uh, afterwards, Randy and I are sitting out back by the bus, and the owner comes out, and. I said to the guy, uh, so, uh, listen, this place is, uh, must've cost you a fortune. Cause it's a really historic place in grand Bend. Like all kinds of bands played there like rush in the seventies. So I said to the guy, uh, geez, man, you must've paid a fortune for this building. He goes, well, I'm a Bitcoin guy. And I'll tell you, I don't, sorry, James, I know you love Bitcoin, but it's every time I hear it. And every time this a-hole I'm partnered with tries to mention paying me in it, I nearly <laughs> punch him out. So we're standing by the bus and the owner comes out and he starts telling me, he goes, yeah, I just bought my third building here. And he, I go, oh yeah. So what Bitcoin? He goes, well, yeah, sort of. I go, yeah, sort of. Right. You bought the three buildings off the old guy who owns the whole town. Right. He goes, yeah. I go, you didn't pay that guy in Bitcoin. Cause if you tried to pay that guy in Bitcoin, he would have called the cops. And he goes, well, no, I sold enough Bitcoin to buy the buildings. So suddenly in my head, I'm going, okay, everybody's trying to explain this to me. It's a stock. It's basically like a stock or like, or it's like a currency. You switch from Canadian currency to U.S. currency right. when you buy a building. So it's a stock. That's what I said to the guy. So it's a stock. You sold Bitcoin to buy something. So my response to him, who I'm partnering with, is you sell some Bitcoin and pay me. End of story. <laughs> it's a strategy. You could do that. <laughs> yeah. By way of intro, Mike Bullard, uh... It's Bullard, not Bullard. Bullard, good research. Bullard, I, I can't, I can't speak Canadian. <laughs> Let me explain uh, it to you. Did you have, as a child, did you have a German Shepherd or a German Shepard? Uh, I had neither. Okay, all right. <laughs> but now I'll keep that in mind. Uh, you've been called the greatest t TV talk show host in Canadian TV history. Yeah. You also did uh, something like how many years of radio? You did like. Uh, ten years. Ten years of radio. Yeah. Uh, you, you've been a stand-up comic for. 25 years or more right. and before that you were a cop before you that you worked at uh or after that you worked at the phone company before yeah. that you dropped out of school to become a, a cop and do stand-up that's, right. that's right you have reinvented yourself so many times and yeah. and from scratch completely created new careers for yourself that were successful like who goes from being a, a cop and then working at the phone company to be having the biggest talk show in Canada. I didn't exactly leave the police force of my own volition. <laughs> no, but you left because, but this is what I admire. You left ostensibly because 
They didn't want you to do stand-up comedy on the side. Jeez, you really do your research. So, so Actually, you, I was going to tell you, uh, uh, jaywalker shots fired, but yeah, <laughs> your story's better. <laughs> well, I think very few people, uh, I think the common thing people do, and I'm always tempted to do this, is to keep uh, doing the things I hate at the sacrifice of the things I love. Because you think right. you have to do the things you hate because of family and responsibilities and this is a safe, yeah, quote-unquote, safe job. It's very hard to make that leap to, so that you're not subtracting from the things you love to do more of the things you, know how you, do you hate. You how realize do you-, you hate your family. <laughs> and, then <laughs> and then you have you no re- more responsibilities. You reinvent yourself and leave them. That's what you do. Well, that uh, that is probably one valid technique. You shouldn't, you know, if things all work out and it's a, a decent split, you don't have to. You don't have to stay with anybody you don't want to stay with. Right, right. So freedom is important. Oh, huge. And and not at the expense of you know not being responsible, but uh, at the same time you can't. You only have one life. You can't spend forty of, years of it with people you don't like living with. Bingo. You've been so, divorced uh, twice. <laughs> yeah, okay. We're, you know, it might be time. For, we're on the same page. I'm after probably... number two, it's time for a look in the mirror. <laughs> I'm just saying. Oh, believe me, my I've had plenty of cracked mirrors, so I've looked at quite a few. <laughs> okay. Uh, so I don't even know where to start. Like it, it's amazing each ring mentioned you did. Why why did you join the police force? Uh when I was a kid, there was nothing but cop shows on TV, and I got sucked into the whole thing. And I loved it. And I thought, man, you join the police force, you become a detective, you solve murders. And then after you write your 50th ticket, you go, shit, this is all it's gonna be. Because it's just paperwork after that. It's Canada. I mean, what are there, 10 murders a year? Chances of you getting involved in them are pretty slim. Plus, I realized after two years of being a cop, I'm the kind of guy who likes to mind my own business, and that's indirect contravention with the job. And so and so at the same time, wh- how did you get... So again... Well, so, my brother was mm-hmm. doing stand-up at Yuck Yucks, mm-hmm. which is probably the biggest comedy channel. Really. I know you've heard of Yuck Yucks. Yeah, yeah. I've, Aaron, I watched you on the 25th anniversary of Yuck Yucks. Right. Aaron uh, probably told you about Yuck Yucks because he started there too. So uh, I was writing for my brother, and then uh, my brother took off for L.A., where he wound up, uh, he and Norm MacDonald left together, and they became, uh, Tom Arnold saw them both in Las Vegas, and he loved them both so much, they were playing the same show, that he hired them both to be writers on Roseanne. So my brother left, he didn't come back, and then I thought, shit, I got to start doing this myself. So in 88, I did my first amateur night. And then from there, it, uh, you know, I had a couple of years there where they were giving me a hard time. There's nothing worse than your brother being a headliner and then you start doing amateur night. Because you always get an asshole MC who introduces you as Pat Bullard's brother instead of doing your name. You know, it's interesting because I've interviewed uh, Tony Rock, Chris Rock's brother, yeah. and we talked about this a little bit. He didn't, he didn't seem to mind, but maybe it's because now it's 20 plus years into his career he's got his own yeah. thing going just just like you know you do and and charlie murphy look at charlie murphy yeah, yeah yeah so so i could imagine but um but you know you did well ended up with your own tv show which we'll, we'll get to eventually but but how was it uh so you, you go up in 1988 you, you know you do your first five minutes you kill because all your friends are there for your first time everybody's there your family your friends you go jesus i'm fantastic now, your second, third, fourth, fifth, sixth time is where you separate the pros from living room funny because those other four or five times after that, you were going to bomb big time. And the same jokes you did that killed on your first night, you're sitting there scratching your head going, why didn't they work? I still remember the first uh, 
two jokes I ever wrote. What, what were the first I, two? I'll tell you, this will be the first time I've ever used them since, and it'll be the last time. Okay, 31 years later, Yeah, these jokes revive, revive from the dead. Uh, there's three, actually. Uh, one was, uh, wait till the Japanese get a hold of bungee jumping, it'll be cordless. <laughs> the second one was, uh, do Eskimo cops feel foolish when they yell freeze? And I couldn't figure out why the second time it didn't kill. And the third one... Why didn't it kill? I, I think that's funny. You know what? Maybe it's funny now. I don't know. It didn't strike people as funny. You know, we got a lot of indigenous people. <laughs> you know what I mean? Including Eskimos. You know, the By the way, we don't call them Eskimos. I don't even know what the hell we call them, but I'm sure some of them were sitting there and didn't like it. By the way, the, the, the president of the United States just tried to buy Greenland, which is all right. 56,000 Eskimos. That's the entire right. population of Greenland. Yeah. He wanted you, to buy you would I kill in Greenland. He wanted to buy Iceland so you guys could get a deal on steam. That's how bright he is. <laughs> Anyway, the third one was the one that made me, and I'll tell you why. The third one was the only way to kill a mime is to shoot him with a silencer. <laughs> Stephen Wright was in the back of the room. Three days later, my phone's ringing off the hook, 30 comics. Did you see Johnny Carson last night? Did you see Johnny Carson last night? So Stephen Wright did my joke on Johnny Carson. So everybody's phoning me going, you got to sue. You must be so mad. I went, fuck mad. I think I know what I'm doing. Yeah. If Stephen Wright stole my joke. I know what I'm doing. Well, let's talk. And about, that gave me the confidence. Yeah, because let's talk about that for a second. Like everyone, I feel like comedians, um, and not just comedians. I see this in every industry. People have a scarcity complex. They're like, oh my god, he said a few words that I've said. I'm never going to say good words again. So right. he needs to get in you're trouble. You're afraid you're going to run out of stuff. Right. People should realize if you have a sense of humor, every day you're going to have new ideas. Like you see comedians doing the same jokes for 40 years. Just just have new ideas. Like And it's, and like you say, you were an amateur night. Here's one of the best comedians ever. Did it on the Carson show the next day or the next week or whatever. It's That's enormous validation. Yeah. And uh, the other uh, the other guy I know, Steve Pearl. You know Steve Pearl? Uh, no. He uh, wrote uh, Cocaine is God's Way of Telling You to Make Too Much Money. Oh, yeah, yeah. I've, so I've heard that joke. Here's the deal with that. Robin Williams did it on his first Tonight Show appearance. I think, I heard Rob, I think I've heard this joke from Robin Williams. So he uh, has his agent call Robin Williams' agent. The next day, he sends Steve Pearl a check for 5000 bucks for one joke. Wow. Steve Pearl never cashed it. It's framed in a frame in his living room. Good for him. Yeah, yeah he didn't cash the check. So that was kind of interesting. But uh, anyway, and, and, once that happened... Instead of me being pissed and bitter about it, it really built my confidence. And that's when I started uh, winging it. Winging it? What do you mean? You know, here's the thing that influenced me more than anything else. Letterman never did anything but MC. The only time Letterman headlined, he bombed. And I heard him talk about this. And uh, for actually, my third year of doing my show, which I'll tell you about later, I had lunch with him. By the way, when I had lunch with him, you know what he said to me? I was doing a Canadian late night talk show. He said, keep it small as long as you can. I said, yeah, that's not going to be a problem. You know? <laughs> but but you, just to just to say, you were beating him in the ratings in in Canada. Yeah, they were airing a show in Canada around the same yeah, time. Yeah, him as and Leno, him and Leno. When I heard that, Toronto Life is a magazine that wanted to do a hatchet piece on me. And then when they got the ratings, I went from being on the cover to a little banner that said, guess who beats David Letterman in Canada? So they didn't even put my picture on the cover because now they couldn't do the hatchet piece, right? Anyway, where was I? I was talking about uh, Letterman. Letterman only emceed. And when I was starting out, I saw an interview with Letterman, and he said, the happiest I ever was was when I just emceed at the comedy store. So I went to Yuck Kicks and I to Breslin, and I said, look, I just want to emcee. 
he goes, well, we got a lot of MCs, you know, and uh, MCing is worse than being a middle. It's the worst job. And I went, no, it's not. I want to do it. He goes, what do you want to do it for? I said, because I want to have a late night talk show. And the only way we get a late night talk show is to be truly spontaneous, listen to people, and come up with stuff like that. Right. I said, because that's the only way I'm going to get a late night talk show in Canada. They're not going to give me 21 writers. They're not going to give me 14 producers. I'm going to have to live by my wits, and I got to hone it. And he said, uh, okay, go ahead. Give it a shot. And that's all I've ever done. Well, and I, and I want to add, like, what distinguished your talk show was not just you doing a monologue. Were you doing a monologue with crowd work? Like, you would, you know, no other, I don't know of any other talk show that does that even now. Like Three years after I hit the air, Letterman started talking to the audience. But and, I, I feel that was more scripted even. Like, they would... He had the 21 writers. I would say that too, James, but uh, we had the same booker. In the third year, I got really lucky. Somehow, Letterman's uh, booker took notice of us and offered to be the stringer down in the States to get us uh, guests. And she's the one who said to me, you know, Letterman saw you doing some uh, crowd work. And now he does a little thing with the crowd that, he, you know, he carries something over from the warm-up and then he'll do it on the air. Like mention somebody who said something to him during the warm-up. She said, he's doing that because he saw how well uh, it's going over for you. I said, really? I said, that's pretty amazing. So, uh, you know, can, 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 I, can I add to this? Because I think this is such an important point, and I think about it a lot in terms of the difference between doing a set that you've written down maybe years before. And honed like it, crazy. Yeah, and honed like crazy with thousands of appearances on stage and doing crowd work. Crowd work is like magic. And, and the reason if why— it's done right. Mm -hmm. if, if it's, it's done, done right. right. And, well, because I think there's two kinds of crowd work. There's the crowd work where it's completely improvised and ripped. There's also the crowd work where you can prepare and then you look for types in the audience to right. fit the, the crowd jokes you want to do. Right. And I think the crowd, work, the crowd work that is totally spontaneous is amazing. And you're right. You have to, you have to learn that as an MC because, you know, I see thousands of MCs down here in this club. Uh, a bad MC just does their material yeah. And that does not warm up an audience that just walked in on the streets. They're ordering their drinks. You've got to engage the audience. Two rules. You've got to electrify them. Two rules for uh, being an MC. Be truly spontaneous or don't do it. And the second rule is don't throw an act under the bus. You're an asshole if you throw an act under the bus when you bring them out or when they leave. Right. That, to me, is the worst thing you can ever do. Because stand-up comics get so little respect that if we don't respect each other and don't prop each other up, who else is going to do it? I, I, I agree with you. The one bad experience I've had as an MC is when a comic threw me under the bus. They'll and, do that. And, and I thought, okay, it's a joke, it's a joke. Then the next show, he did the exact same thing. Didn't, he didn't watch my set or anything. He had just walked in when I announced him. And, and he was like a famous guy and the, it was a full crowd. Yeah. And it was just like a cheap... I thought it was like the hackiest way to get the crowd, you know, chuckling a little bit. Uh, I so had I, a so guy, and I, and I tell you who he was, but I can't remember his name, who came out once, and it was pretty sweet because I was pretty well-known in Canada, and he came out after I introduced him and said, how about a big hand for what's-his-name? And the crowd turned on him, and he never got him back. So that was sweet revenge for me right in the moment. Okay, I had, I, can I tell you my revenge? Yeah. So the next show where I was also emceeing where he was, there was, I found through crowd work, there was an opera singer in the back. So I, I had the opera singer come up on stage. 
There were two people who were celebrating birthdays. I had her sing in the most beautiful voice, her right. opera voice, you know, happy birthday. The audience was just fascinated and, and they, they loved it. And then I introduced immediately the comedian. So he had no energy from the crowd at all. They were all engaged with what had just happened. And he fell flat uh, immediately. Yeah, so, it's great. Yeah, that was, and you I, I felt so good about that. Yeah, the one uh, case, the one exception for that for me was uh, Eric Douglas, Kirk Douglas's son. Huh. Do you remember when this guy uh, was a hobbyist in stand-up? No. Jesus, I was playing Montreal, the Comedy Nest, Ernie Butler's club. Probably outside of Yuck Yuck's the best club in Canada. Crowds were fantastic. It's like, because uh, you're doing it in English, and people in Montreal are English-starved, so they're ecstatic to be there in the first place, so you got two strikes right out of the way. Because, you know, it's against a lot who uh, have English signage in Montreal, in Quebec. Oh, I didn't know that. Oh, yeah. Uh, hey, they don't man, have both? I'm going to fill you in on Canada, <laughs> this sweet, beautiful place. You See, I didn't do my research on, on I should yeah. have researched every city of Canada first. <laughs> yeah, well, in the U.S., they stab you in the front. In Canada, they stab you in the back, but that's a whole story. <laughs> so anyway, uh, I'm playing Montreal, and Eric Douglas is there. This is the guy who died of a uh, Coke overdose, right? And normally I feel bad for people who die of a Coke overdose, but this guy was so big an asshole that when he died, I felt the same way as I did when Johnny Versace died. Because I bought a Johnny Versace shirt once and the button fell off and they wouldn't give me my money back. So, someone so when Johnny Versace died, I was like, good. Anyway, uh, Eric Douglas eventually died of a Coke overdose. But I'm in the back, I'm in the green room at the Comedy Nest with a bunch of other guys who are great comics. Uh, Norm McDonald was there. I was there. It was before Norm left for LA. So we're sitting back there and Eric Douglas is acting like he owns the club. He's acting like he's uh, 10 times better. We've never seen the guy in our lives. So Eric Douglas goes, uh, uh, what's your name? I said, I already told you three times, Mike. Yeah, Mike, uh, when you introduce me, don't mention my father and don't mention my brother. I go, what? That's the only ground rule. He goes, yeah. You know, just uh, say how great I am and uh, bring me out. I go, that's it. He goes, yeah. I go, okay. So when I introduced him, I said, please welcome son of Spartacus. <laughs> and that's the only time I ever did it. And the guy deserved it. And he went out and he bombed big time. So wait, you say, I, I, I agree with the advice. Don't throw the act under the bus. And I also agree with your two anecdotes, but... Clearly, you don't always follow the advice. Like, what? That was a one time. Uh, and l let me ask you this, because I think there's a third rule, which is there's a fine line between spontaneous and and MCs kind of tucking in their act into their MC set. You know, when they're trying right. to warm up the audience, I kind of. That's why the best MCs are guys who've never done anything else. That's probably true. Richard like, Belzer. Yeah. All they ever did was MC. Or or there was a guy at the comedy cellar who, who in New York here who who just MC'd for years and didn't really do sets. But right. I mean, I think doing sets helps you with a different type of responsiveness to the crowd too. Yeah. Uh that helps with MC. But I think it's a it is a com like when people come to see me when I'm doing an MC set versus a regular set, I tell them it's not my stand-up set. It's a completely different experience. Right. As the MC, you're trying to tribe build the crowd. You have to really engage with them so that it's better for them than watching a YouTube video. You know what it is, though, James? You got to know when to get out. You got to know when to stop. Hmm. Like, the most pressure I was ever under was uh, CTV is like the equivalent to ABC in the U.S., and I had a one-hour comedy special, and uh, I didn't write anything for it. It was at the Opera House in Toronto, 
which holds about 800 people. So that was the most pressure I ever felt in my life because it was six months before my late night talk show debuted. And I'll never forget this. I'm supposed to do 40 minutes so they can cut in commercials. So I go, shit, I can do 40 minutes. It's going to take me 40 minutes to say hello. This is going to be great. Well, then the head of the network comes in and he walks up to me and he goes, 10 minutes before I go on, you know what? Go up there and have fun. Do an hour and a half. Go up there and have fun. Do an hour and a half with five cameras on you. And I'm going, Jesus, are they going to edit this? What are they going to do? So I went up and did the hour and a half. And I did a, uh, I forget what I did. Somewhere through the middle, I did something with a guy. And then at the end, I ended it with the guy. And I don't know if the crowd was more amazed by the joke or the fact that 90 minutes later, I still remembered the guy's name hmm. and what he did. And it's know? a nice callback. Guy was a dentist. And uh, I, set it up, I set it up with a guy and make it fun and all that jazz. And then I ended the special with, you know, I, uh, I was at my dentist last week. I uh, had a root canal, uh, no pain at all. A guy knocked me out, gave me gas. Then I got home and noticed my underwear was on backwards. Night. <laughs> and that was it. That's how they ended the special. That's funny. Yeah. So, so when, you're, when you're doing the crowd work, and again, this was a, a hallmark of your later TV show. This is obviously this is a, a big part of your stand-up. Aaron Berg who I consider the the god of crowd work here in New York, uh, complimented you. He said he, he learned his chops from you. Uh, when you're saying you're going to be spontaneous, what does that mean? Like, wh- how, do you, how do you practice that muscle? You don't. You, you practice it. I'll tell you how you practice it. This is a good question. Mm-hmm. You practice it all day long with everybody you bump into. I stopped at a barbershop on the way here. And my goal was to walk in, talk to the three barbers about a haircut, make them laugh for like two minutes, and then leave. At the hotel this morning with the girl behind the front desk who seemed to be the coldest human being on earth, I stood there until I cracked her. And then I went and had breakfast. Then when I went and had breakfast, I talked to the waiter about New York for a while. We had a couple of good jokes between us. And that's how you hone it. The second thing is no booze, no drugs, not ever. I got drunk when I was 18 threw up the lining of my lungs the next day on 151 proof rum, never drank again. Wow, I didn't know that. Yeah, never drank again. I come from a long line of Irish alcoholics too. Christ, these people blow up their own cars. <laughs> so so, so uh, you think the booze or the drugs would, would stop the spontaneity? I know at least four guys who died. Hmm. Mike McDonald, you know who Mike McDonald was? Mm-mm. Really, you guys yeah. don't. Yeah, no. You talk to any comic in New York, they'll worship him. Did he start McDonald's? <laughs> I'm <laughs> practicing. Yeah. <laughs> Things were never the same after he left his brother. Uh, Mike was uh, probably the Dennis Leary of Canada. Okay. Or should we say Bill Hicks? Okay, Bill Hicks. So uh, Mike, a uh, lot of heroin, a lot of booze, got a liver transplant and stopped doing everything, but sadly he died two years ago. And there were guys like him, there were other guys I knew who uh, committed suicide. My my thing was, give me my money, I'm going to the ATM and I'm going home. That was my thing. I mean, Soft drinks were free, I got 50% off the food, the most I ever owed at the end of the night, not including tipping out the waitresses, which I always did. Tipping out the waitresses is something you should always do, because if you tip out the waitresses, they're going to be as quiet as jungle cats when they serve the table when you're performing, you know what I mean? You don't tip out the waitresses, they're going to drop a glass. So uh, 
these guys were sticking around till three in the morning. Here's the Ernie Butler story. I wanted to tell you this story. Ernie Butler on the comedy nest. He, I killed there, but he hated my guts. You know why? Because I didn't drink and I didn't do drugs. Because here's how Ernie Butler paid you. Every night, if you had a killer show, Ernie invited you up to his inner sanctum, the office. And Ernie laid out a mile-long line of Coke on the desk. You did great. You want some Coke? Sure. Then at the uh, end of the weekend, you went up to get paid. Okay, I owe you 86 bucks because you snorted 400 bucks worth of Coke. Bye. Hated me because it would be, I owe you 800 bucks. That's right. You owe me 800 bucks. Give it to me. So that really pissed him off. And I used to take great joy in that, to the fact that he had to actually pay me at the end of the weekend. To me, that was sweet, you know, because I walked out with the money. And, and so, so, but obviously he kept asking you to come back to MC so that right. you were creating right. the value. Mm -hmm. uh, and, and again, I'm fascinated with, with the, all the reinventions and all the different arcs in your career, but I really am... You know, uh, uh, sorry, go ahead. I, I really am particularly interested right now in uh, this... I was just having this, it's so funny we're talking about this because I was just having this com conversation this morning with another friend of mine who's a, a comedian. There are some comedians that they go up there, they do their act, they get off, and you could tell it was just an act. They have no sense of humor, whatever. Other people are just on and on and on. They're on all the time. And they can do that spunt. They have an act, but then you could see all throughout their act, they're intermingling. The crowd is yeah. spontaneous. They're riffing. They're, they're, they've got zingers in between every half joke. And two it's amazing. Kinds, it's great you said that because there's two kinds of comedians, comics and monologists. Hmm. And there's a huge difference between a comic and a monologist. A comic is naturally funny, has been his entire life or her life. <laughs> Notice I threw in her. 2019, man. Yeah, yeah. And uh, a monologist is a guy like Jerry Seinfeld, who I played with in Niagara Falls once, New York, and I could hear him typing in his room all day before he went on that night. And that's a monologist. Okay, but I admire his that discipline too. I mean, oh, unbelievable. Yeah, the guy was probably writing fifty jokes, maybe every thousand jokes he picked one, <laughs> and yep. that's 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 no easy skill either. To, well, to the other thing he was doing was he. He's playing a shitty comedy club in Niagara Falls, and he's got five suits. Like, you know, you, you get over the thrill of travel after your first year. Like, I remember starting out carrying two suits and a sports jacket and a shirt and a tie and being all excited about, oh, I get to get dressed up and I get to perform in front of Now, maybe a Harley t-shirt and this, and a couple of shirts to change into and two pairs of underwear. That's the other thing that happens, you know? Well, so so with the... Like, did you, did you ever find like, okay, let's say you're MC 50 times, hundred times. And of course, in the, in the course of that, with each, uh, MC set, you're, you're interacting with 10 to 20 people. Do you find that you, you internally categorize different types of people? Like, oh, here's this category. I can pull out these jokes I've used in the past. So you start to get, uh, a language of, of spontaneity. You get, uh, to the point where you hope that you never heard of the job this person does when you talk to them because you want to come up with something and you don't want to be lazy. You don't want to go, you know, guy's an accountant. I, I mean, I've dealt with accountants before. I don't want to do the same joke. You're like, what would you, okay, let's say some guy's an accountant in Kazakhstan. <laughs> what, like, it sounds so boring, both words, accountant and Kazakhstan. What would you, what, I'm not putting you on the I'll spot. Tell you what like, happened. How would you think about it? I'll tell you it? what happened. Guys, I was there one night 
and a guy uh, said he was a forensic accountant. And I said, a forensic accountant? What's that, an accountant who solves the murders of other accountants? <laughs> and the guy went nuts. And then two years later, another forensic accountant, and it's the only time I ever did it. I went, I got to use that joke again. I haven't used that joke in two years, and it's such a great joke. And because of all these forensic files, TV shows and shit, people went insane. And and so even coming up with that, like my first thing was, okay, I, I st you start branching off from the words he's saying. So, okay, does he just do the taxes of dead people or, yeah. you know, but that was a twist that you did where I didn't consider in the split second we had of like, oh, what do you do? Uh uh, you know, solve, solve the murders of dead accounts or whatever yeah. you said. So again, is that just, uh, you know, how much did you build that muscle up through experience? How much was it kind of like a natural? The key is I don't care how shitty the place is and I don't care how many people are there. The difference between pros and everybody else is you don't get nervous and you don't get lackadaisical. You get excited every time before you get up. You come in, you look at the room, you look at the people, and you, you, you build up some excitement inside yourself before you set foot out there. That's the key to everything, excitement. How do you build up that excitement if, if, you're, uh, if you're a naturally nervous person? Well, I'm not a naturally nervous person, so, you know, I mean, for me, it was all around our dinner table. I mean, that's where it all happened. Our dinner table was a competition when I was a kid. Right, but, who's but, funnier so i i, I never got uh, nervous even from the first time i ever went on but but at the dinner table or or at the diner you ate out this morning or whatever you could say stuff there's not an audience some things will hit some things will make yeah. the waitress funny it's a little bit of a captive audience uh uh when you're up on stage the slight difference is is that your job is to warm up the crowd there may be 50 to a thousand people in there yeah. and or 10 to a thousand people in there and you know, if someone says something boring and you can't think of something in the first second or two, you kind of have to move on. And so you need a bunch of tricks for I moving gotta, on. Uh, moving on is just moving on. That's what I do. I just move on. And that can be funny too. It's like, it okay. Could be funny. Uh, really? Yeah. Well, there's nothing there. Bye. Right. Or, or I didn't, I didn't hear what you just said. So I'm just moving here. And, uh, it's the mic. It's the light. It's the smell. When you walk in, it, it, you talk to anybody who's good at it, anybody who really does it, and they'll tell you that. My favorite smell in the world is walking into a dank comedy club. You know, the stale beer, even though I don't drink, the stale beer, the, the must off the carpet, depending upon how far down in the bowels of a building the place is, and it just does something to you. It just does something to you. It's like... Uh, uh, a smell, I don't know, that, that somebody gets when they get to work that they really enjoy, like a guy who's baking bread. For me, it's the same deal. When I walk in there and smell that, I just go, I got to have this. Do you think that's why, like, no matter who I speak to on this podcast, no matter how far they've risen in the TV world or movie world. and I always had go some, back. I've had some huge stars on, and they always say their true, one true love is stand-up. There's this addictive quality, and is it, what is it? Is it that direct interaction with the crowd? Is it, yeah. when, you, when you say creating excitement, are you excited for yourself? Are you excited that you're going to provide this gift to the crowd? And maybe I'm putting words in your mouth. Like, but like, what, what is that? You just wrote, produced, and uh, starred in a show that was completely dependent upon you. 
You didn't have to count on a camera guy getting the right shot. You didn't have to count on a producer going out and getting you the right things you needed, the tools you needed to do your job that night. It all comes down to you. You know, like when they say one-man show, stand-up's a one-man show. Stand-up's a one-woman show. Did it again. It's a one-person show. It's, you're in complete control. Nobody's going to grab you and go, stop now. Nobody's going to say, uh, you can't say that. Because you just said it. It's too late. It came out of your mouth. And it's, and it's hit the uh, audience. And it's come back to you in laughter. So, too bad. It's done. I have to say, Airbnb has changed my life. I just love staying in Airbnbs. Like in about a month, I'm going to Cocoa Beach, which is right next to Cape Canaveral. I'm going to watch some rocket launches. I'm going to, of course, be staying in a very nice Airbnb on the beach. And it's just such a great experience. Like the whole world is available to us now because of Airbnb. But whenever I'm at an Airbnb, I always realize, you know, I the home that I left to come to this Airbnb, I could be making money on that right now by hosting and and being an Airbnb myself. So, and I've known people, I had a friend who basically, you know, made a living from turning his home into an Airbnb. So if you have a home, but you're not always at home, you do have an Airbnb there. And it's an e- it can easily fit into your lifestyle and it's a great way to earn some money. Your home might be worth more than you think. Find out how much at airbnb.com slash host. I remember last year I was asked to go speak at the Norway Business Summit, and I was so excited because side-by-side with the Business Summit was the Norway Chess Summit, where I would get to see in person Magnus Carlsen, the best chess player ever, playing chess. But it was four plane rides, like to get to the city that ultimately I would go to. So I really did not want to fly for 14 hours. And they, they were willing to pay for everything for me. So I, I, at first class. So I didn't want to fly for 14 hours and not be first class. So I had to hurry up and get on the phone immediately to get those first class tickets to a chess tournament in Norway. And listen, this is just like when, you know, you have to know when you want the best of anything, you have to act quickly or someone else will get it instead. And I did not want those seats to fill up. So it's like if you're hiring for your business, you want to find the most talented people for your open roles before the competition scoops them up. I just was talking to a friend this morning where he was trying to decide between some programmers and he waited a little too long and both the programmers he was interviewing took other jobs, like great jobs. So, you know, what's the best way then to hire the best as quickly as possible? ZipRecruiter. ZipRecruiter finds qualified candidates fast. And right now you could try it for free at ZipRecruiter.com slash James. Just try it and see. You'll, you'll find out. So ZipRecruiter's powerful matching technology takes center stage to identify the top talent for your roles. 
immediately after you post your job, ZipRecruiter's smart technology starts showing you qualified people for it. And I know this because one time I signed up as an employee, potential employee on ZipRecruiter, and I got nonstop, really, I was, even though obviously I wasn't looking for a job, I love what I do, but I just wanted to see what would happen because they were a, a, a sponsor of my podcast. And the most interesting jobs would pop up in my emails like, hey, you're qualified for this or that. And so it's interesting to see. So just just go there and try it. Try ZipRecruiter.com slash James. Amp up your hiring performance. Now, this is more for if you're hiring, but amp up your hiring performance with ZipRecruiter and find the best fast. See why four out of five employers who post on ZipRecruiter get a quality candidate within the first day. Just go to this exclusive web address right now to try ZipRecruiter for free. ZipRecruiter.com slash James. Again, that's ZipRecruiter.com slash James. ZipRecruiter, the smartest way to hire. Reese's peanut butter cups are the greatest, but let me play devil's advocate here. Let's see. So, no, that's a good thing. Uh, <laughs> that's definitely not a problem. Uh, Reese's, you did it. You stumped this charming devil. So this is a very, what I call, choose yourself kind of definition of what you're doing. If, if, if everybody in the world is saying, no, Mike, you can't do a show we've got, you got to get an agent, you got to get a TV producer, you got to right. get a TV network, and then we'll consider you and we'll, we'll promote you or cancel you or whatever. You're, you're basically saying, Hey, I want to have my own show. Right. I'm going to go up on stage yeah. tonight and do a show. You know how I did it? You know, who the CBC is right. Yeah. It's like the BBC. In yeah, yeah. I have been on CBC. Okay. So where were you? What were you on? Uh, I was on a business show. Okay. So I was on the CBC. They were doing uh, comedy specials. It was called com. It was called uh, comics. So the first year I didn't get one, and CBC was going, "Well, UMC." And then the second year, the other comics were going, "Why doesn't Mike Bullard have one? How come he hasn't had one?" So the third year they gave me one. So what I did was I gamed them, like they've never been gamed, ever. You had to do fifteen minutes. Of st- you had to do half an hour stand up. It was a one hour special. And you had to do CBC, such bullshit. You had to do a half hour of something else. Well, wait a minute. I'm not a sketch guy. What's this half hour of something else? They said, well, you can do sketches. You can do, uh, you can do a uh, funny little short film. I go, I'm not interested in doing any of those things. They said, well, what do you want to do? I said, I want to do a parody of a talk show. They that's go, that's funny. a great idea. So I go, they go, what do you want? I said, I need two of your uh, most famous Canadian TV personalities, and I'll do uh, interviews with them. They said, what a great idea. I said, I know, it's a great idea. So I did it, and I took it to a competing network and said, I want a late-night talk show. And that's how you got the show. I did a legitimate half-hour late-night talk show, and all you had to do was use the word parody with CBC, and those idiots up top didn't even notice. And did in the interviews were they parody interviews or did you do serious interviews? I just did real interviews with two guys. One was uh, like a Neil deGrasse Tyson of Canada, uh-huh. science guy, had a barrel last with him. So he's like a high school physics teacher. And the other, yeah, and the other guy was like the Walter Cronkite of Canada, Nolton Nash. He was our most famous news anchor. Huh. Did one with him, made him funny. Made the second guy Bob McDonald funny. 
took it to CTV, and they said, wow, this is great. I said, yeah. So I think it was probably a $100,000 demo tape that they paid me to do. It was the most beautiful thing ever. It, it reminds me, though, you, you know, you know um, Eric Andre? He has the, um, he kind of has a parody talk show. Yeah. And, and I love it how he, I, I, from what I understand, I don't know if this story is true or not, but he basically wanted to do a talk show. So he just got some space at the back of some bodega, uh, called publicists and said, I have a real talk show. And they sent over some right. movie stars. And he did these completely insane parody yeah. interviews. And then Adult Swim picked it up. And yeah. so I like that. That, you know, it's sort of like you allow, again, you don't let them choose you. You choose yourself right. and do it. People right. don't understand. They think they need to, like, do X, Y, and Z. Or they need to... Uh, uh, have certain credentials or degrees or whatever, you can just do something and that's the best proof that you can do it. <laughs> now, 20 years ago, like social media wasn't what it is. Right, so right? now what you did was incredible. Yeah. Like yeah. If you just did it in your backyard, they, CTV wouldn't have looked at it. No, nope. nope. and now that's they what I had to it. do. That's what I had to do because if, if a network didn't do it, you weren't going to get it done. But I, I think the, the, this underlines the importance of doing Versus like, oh, I've been a stand-up for this many years. Let me try out for you so you could pick me. Right. You picked yourself to actually do something, and that was the thing you wanted to do. Yeah, yeah. It was, uh, I, couldn't be I couldn't believe it. I mean, I, that was my first dealing with uh, television executives. And I, I remember going, Jesus Christ, this is what I should have done. I should have become a television executive. <laughs> These guys are stupid. <laughs> and then... What, like what how did you like they so so CTV offers you this deal to what do What happened was the all of a sudden uh they opened the floodgates in Canada for specialty TV channels. So you guys had Comedy Central down here. CTV got the license for the Comedy Network. This is a good story too. So they get the license for the Comedy Network and I bring them this tape and they give me this Comedy Now special. Well after the Comedy Now special they were ecstatic and said you know, you're so good off the cuff. We are going to give you this late night talk show. And I went, great. So uh, what happened was I was on on the comedy network only, right, which was really small. But I wanted to be on the main network, CTV. I wanted to be on that main network so bad I could taste it because I knew that's where I was going to get a half decent living wage, not a, you know, comedy network. I was never going to make any decent money. So, can you tell me, like, on the comedy network – a, what, what were they paying? And B, what were the well, numbers like? What, what were the what ratings like? I was doing uh, about 100,000 people a night on uh, the Comedy Network. That's, that's great. In Canada, it's huge. Yeah. You know, if you're, on, if you're on Canadian television for seven years, that's like dog years in the U.S. That's like 49 years in the U.S. If you can pull off seven years in Canada, that's the equivalent to pulling off Johnny Carson years in the yeah. U.S., because everybody hates people who do well in Canada. Every Canadian hates, you know, somebody who's doing well and is well known unless you're a newscaster. That was the saddest thing. Newscasters were the biggest stars in Canada for 50 years. It was sickening. Anyway, so they, so I'm on the comedy network. I'm not on the main network. Then TV guide. Remember that? Anybody here? Anybody? Uh, Bueller? Anybody? Remember TV guide? So TV guide says they want to do a cover story on the show. And they go, but we can't do a cover story on the show because the comedy network isn't on in Manitoba or Quebec. So an executive at CTV goes, well, we want him to get the TV Guide cover story. 
we should put them on CTV. And that's how it happened. They put me on 1130 at night on CTV just so I could get the cover of TV Guide for a story. And then the numbers came in the first week, and I was beating Letterman and Leno, and they left me on CTV. What were the numbers? So if 100,000 on the Comedy Network. was doing 275 at midnight. Wow. 275 at midnight. Leno and Letterman were doing like 140 each. Wow, so you basically got them combined. It was almost for yeah. the first couple of years, yeah. And I was shocked, man, because I got to tell you, I was not getting big stars. The guy who broke my star cherry was Dennis Leary, and I'll always love him for doing it. I worked with him in Rochester 25 years ago, and he was in Toronto, and he actually phoned me up and said, how come you haven't asked me to be on your show? I went, I didn't know you were here. Dennis Leary comes on, and all of a sudden, every so-called famous Canadian wanted to be on the show the next day after Dennis Leary came on. But the funniest moment for me, and the reason I always stayed humble, one night I got this actor on from a CBC show, and I throw to an Advil commercial, and he's in it. <laughs> that to me was so Canadian. There's nothing more Canadian than that. That never happens in the US where you throw to a commercial and the guy who's your main guest that night is on the commercial. Why do you think it doesn't happen in the US? Do you think they kind of scan for that? Like, I think that it's all about star power on a talk show, right? Especially now with so many of them. Like somebody asked me, would you like to do it today? I said, nope. Well, you know, it's an interesting thing because the talk show format, I feel, is kind of dying right now like it got there got to be too many talk shows and none of them are really doing great i mean you could say argue jimmy fallon because right. of that particular position is great and also he's mastered a way to take segments and put them on youtube right. he kind of instinctively uh, and colbert's do doing great but if trump ever turns into a human being colbert's going to be canceled yeah and 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 i'm not saying the other talk shows are, necess are necessarily bad but there's so much there's so much um, content out there that's not live, that's great, you know, that you could you could choose to watch instead right. of tonight's, you know, late night with whoever. There's 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 less incentive to turn on. Oh, I gotta see the late night show of the day. And then you then you then you're not you're not even throwing in Comedy Central, right? I mean, you throw in Samantha B and Trevor Noah, and gee, man, there's just you know, it's like there's ten of them. Yeah. And I always go, wow. And, and, you know, and you can always tell, too, when somebody's opening a movie, like uh, it opened last week, and the, uh, one of the leads was on uh, Kimmel on Monday and Colbert on Friday. The one that cracks me up is uh, they all crack me up because they all act like they're big supporters of each other. You ever notice that? Yeah. Colbert will give Fallon a compliment on the air, and Fallon will give Colbert a compliment on bullshit you'd kill this guy if you thought you could get away with it like you'd kill the guy there's no way there's it's, no way these guys are that supportive of each other because i've done it and i know you are not friends right because it's, it's if someone's not watching you they're right. watching the other it's like guy. clooney and pitt right clooney's got to stand on an orange crate pitt is six foot one there's nothing clooney hopes for more than pitt getting his legs amputated in a motorcycle <laughs> accident so so you're doing this late night show. You're this is this is nine years in or eight years into your comedy career, right? Is when you first started. Doing yeah, you know what? I started in '88, and the show went on the air in '97. Yeah. So, and did it, do you think it took you like that was a good kind of warming up period, like that many Perfect. years of of 
of crowd work and and you know i had a full-time job right up till six months before the show debuted yeah you're working for uh bell, bell. yeah corporate investigation well what's what's that like 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 what would be an investigation Sixty-five thousand people embezzlement uh i was in charge of interrogation like what would they embezzle like an employee contractor kickbacks i got a guy for uh 12 million bucks my last year there wow so so an executive at bell would hire someone to build out some kind of infrastructure what happened was this guy was uh not even a mid-level manager he made 90k a year and uh the thing that twigged everything was an employee went to his house for a christmas party the guy's living in a million dollar house there's a range rover and a mercedes in the driveway so i get a call on the monday from somebody going uh this guy's wife is a teller at the bank and i know how much he makes because we have the same job so first thing you do is check for inheritances. There were none. How do you check for that? There's uh, ways to go about it. You, uh, it's a matter of public record in Canada where you can go to uh, an archive and you can look it up, like wills, all kinds of shit. Look up the guy's name. Took forever. And the other one was, did he win the lottery? And that was a simple call to an investigator at the uh, Lottery and Gaming Commission who told me no. So then uh, the guy, what he was doing was Northern Telecom was one of the biggest suppliers of telephone equipment in the world, and we owned them. So instead of buying computer patch cords from Northern, this guy goes to some rinky-dink company outside of Toronto, and he's buying the patch cords off this guy. So I go, why the hell is he buying patch cords off this guy when we own Northern Telecom? And he's buying them to the tune of like four million bucks a year. Hmm. So then right away I go, well, obviously the guy's giving him a kickback. So the kickback wound up being about 12 million bucks. Oh my gosh, how many years have been doing it? The guy had been doing it for about five years. So uh, I call him in to interrogate him. And because he's an employee, it's not a criminal charge yet. So, you know, he's, he's on the clock, right? He's being paid. So, you know, he can't leave the room. You got him in there and you're sweating him and you don't even let him leave to go to the bathroom. The key is a big bottle of water in front of the guy and no access to a bathroom. If you got to take a piss, you'll confess to, uh, the Sharon Tate murder. <laughs> if you got to, I swear to God, no, you can beat some, like cops talk about beating people up all the time, getting a confession. If a guy's got a piss, he'll confess to anything. The great train robbery. It doesn't matter. He's got to take a piss. So this guy had a big bottle of water in front of him. His bladder was about to explode. Then he confesses to the whole thing. So I let him go to the bathroom and the company wanted his balls. I mean, they wanted him in jail. So we used Chubb, right? For forensic accounting. And, uh, so, you, so you're saying finally he confessed? He or? confessed the whole thing. Why, so why wouldn't he just say no, or I need a lawyer? Uh, I, I, he can't, it's not a he can't ask for a lawyer. You haven't charged him with anything. He's on company time and he's being paid. So he can't ask for a lawyer. The lawyer comes when you call the police and it's wrapped in a red ribbon and you hand it to him and they arrest him. That's what happens at the end. So we sold, we got it. We got his house. We got his cars. We got his bank accounts and he had 6 million bucks in the Cayman Islands. Did you get that? Yeah. Took I, him down, took him down on the company jet got the money back. So he stole 12. By the time we sold the house, the cars and his stocks and got the money back to the Cayman's, we got 14 million bucks back. So the company comes to me and goes, what should we do with the guy? I said, well, we would have 
we would have flushed that money down the toilet in a year. Yeah, we got him, 14 million. Put him in charge back. of the pension fund. Yeah, I said, we should give him a merit award. <laughs> and they go, what are you kidding? And I go, well, no, we got to send him to jail. But I'm just telling you, we should put the guy in charge because we're getting 14 million back on 12 million stolen. Nobody gets 14 million back. And they're going, are you serious? They were so pissed at me. And I go, look, I'm just kidding, okay? We're going to call the cops. So the funny part to me was the guy wound up in the uh, in uh, penitentiary in in Ontario, and six months later I got a late night talk show. So all I, all I was doing was picturing this guy sitting in the common room with all these guys. I know that watching guy. me on TV, going, "Who is this guy? I know, I know this guy from somewhere. Who is this guy?" That cracked me up. So if so, given that he was going to go to jail anyway, he didn't try to, you know, kind of pretend the six million wasn't there like oh i lost that or nope no pretending he, i tell you he had to take a piss so bad i mean the cops talk, cops kill you they tell you these stories about how i solved this how i saw that full bladder will solve anything i'm telling you people will guys i don't know about women because women don't steal by the way that's one thing i learned over the course of time women do not steal money you know they'll fuck up your whole life but they won't steal your money they won't, if, if they're a CEO, they will not steal money. They're always honest. I've never heard of a female CEO going to jail. But with guys, I tell you, once Martha that bladder. Martha Stewart. Hmm? Martha Stewart. Yeah, what'd she do, though? Yeah, she, I, I agree It with cost you. her more money to land that plane right. than she made on that right, stock, right. right? And I'm not one for feeling sorry for Martha Stewart because I met her once and there was nothing behind those eyes. Nothing. Like dead. It's like Celine Dion's husband. Two people I met who had no soul, Martha Stewart and Celine Dion's husband. <laughs> it's like obscure. <laughs> when you meet a brown-eyed person and there's nothing warm in their eyes, run as far and as fast as you can. And that's how I felt about Martha Stewart and him. But uh, yeah, full bladder, you're going to confess to anything. So you already knew in advance, this guy definitely did it. You got to know first. Yeah. You got to know going in. So, so it wasn't like you kind of read whether he was lying or not. No. Not like you played him in any way. No. It's just you kind of waited him if out. If a cop ever calls you in and says to you, here's another one. I shouldn't be giving this away, but if a cop ever calls you in and, and you're sitting down and goes, do you know what you're here for? Your answer should be no idea. None. What am I here for? If you say to somebody, what are you here for? You'd be amazed at how many things they confess to that you didn't even know. The thing you know about, they won't mention, but there'll be two other things they'll bring up. It's incredible. Well, what's another tip for all our criminal listeners? <laughs> Get mad. Anybody accuses you of anything, go psychotic. You know, it's interesting because um, I was just reading, uh, so Malcolm Gladwell has this and new don't, book. Oh, by the way, one more thing. Don't blame somebody else. The thing they're looking for especially in business, if you've embezzled, they're looking for you to say, no, I don't know anything about it, but I'm pretty sure that guy at the desk next to me does. As soon as you do that, they know you're guilty. If you put it on somebody else, they know you did it. Why is that? Because that's what a sociopathic type will do. They'll mm -hmm. put it off on somebody else. Mm -hmm. um, I was just reading in, in, so Malcolm Gladwell has this brand new book, Talking with Strangers, and basically saying that nobody, the police, the CIA, the FBI, no judges, nobody can really determine if someone's telling the truth. And they use the Amanda Knox case. I don't know if you remember that. She's yep. that basically because she looked guilty, like she would not look right. She gave it. off all the uh, earmarks of it. Right. So everybody just assumed she was guilty because she didn't. She didn't look like an actor on TV who's right. innocent, but being accused of something. She looked like 
Amanda Knox yeah. and her personality, however yeah. that was, they automatically assumed she was guilty. And, and, and there was this huge, you know, it was a huge case. The other thing is they talk about kinesic interview technique. I read a book on kinesic interview technique. How do I know the guy I'm interviewing didn't read a book on kinesic interview technique? That's why kinesic interview technique makes me laugh. What is it? I don't even know what that is. It's all the uh, signs people give off when they're lying. Well, if the guy who's lying read it, then he's, you know. Wait, doesn't he's gonna they, make they you look like a, has a joke like that in Sticks and Stones uh, in his new special where the t- he's like, why are we, why are the kids going to these um, special classes on what to do right. if there's a shooter in the building? The, isn't the shooter in that class also? Yeah, but I did an interview on kinesic interview technique two years ago, and I already said that formula. And I didn't make it a joke, so that's, don't, that's go, funny. don't jump on me. That's funny. Yeah. So so um, what about, like, do you believe in kind of these microfacial expressions? No, you know what? You know, the only thing you can believe in is the confession. Hmm. I said that to somebody once. Unless they tell you they did it, unless you get them to a point where they're going to tell you, you can't trust anything. Like, what's this crap about? I remember my old man going, when you shake a man's hand, you give him a firm handshake. And if he doesn't give you one back, don't do business with him. Well, what if his dad, who was a sleazeball con artist, said to him, make sure you give a guy a firm handshake when you want to steal all his money. <laughs> like, you know, that, that stuff we learned as kids is all bullshit. I love how you sound like an Irish cop and like... My old family's <laughs> Irish. My family's Irish. And then meanwhile, you're you've basically been a stand-up comedian for 30 years and talk show host and all these things. You're Jewish, so, right? Yeah, yeah. Yes. Well, you don't, you, like you don't even know. <laughs> you don't even know what revenge prone is. My uncle went to his brother's funeral. My aunt was crying like crazy, missing the guy. My uncle walked in for five minutes and went, I just came to make sure he's dead and turned around and walked on his heel and walked out. That's the kind of people I come from. So, okay. My grandfather was a heavyweight boxing champion in the military. I remember my dad saying to me, uh, only a coward hits a woman, except for your grandfather. He just hits everybody. <laughs> and if his wife happens to be in the way when he's trying to get at a guy, so be it. Oh, my God. That's the kind of guy he was, you know? So, so do you think this kind of intense, almost, uh, you know, no you know, nothing held back uh, environment that you were growing up in. Do you think this helped with that crowd yeah. work, which got you ready for the You know what helped? My, my old man was great, man. Uh, my mother was the father and my father was the mother. My mother would kick the shit out of us at any given opportunity, you know what I mean? My father, different story. Come and talk to me. And uh, my father allowed us to say anything we wanted. Like from the, I'm not kidding, from the time we were five, my old man was say anything you want. You know, don't swear at the table, but this dinner table is for talking. You can say anything you want. And when you got three brothers and you're competing for your two minutes of conversation time with your dad, it becomes a free for all, mm-hmm. you know? And that's where it happens. Mm-hmm. Like I've talked to a lot of comics, Leary too. He comes from an Irish family. And he said that dinner table on Sunday night, man, you got the hook. You know what I mean? It was the first place you got the hook. Like if your mother, if your mother and father turn and say, shut up. And your brother's got the stage now, you failed. Hmm. That's what it was. It was like a comedy club. You know, it's so interesting because, you know, you said about, you know, before you get on stage, whether it's stand up or MC or whatever, you, you, you get yourself very excited. And uh, I don't know if you mean that you kind of, 
Uh, envision. Yeah, yeah. What do you envision? Like, what do you? I envision what? killing. <laughs> I've told other guys that. Uh-huh. Envision killing. Don't envision. Uh, oh my God! I'm looking at that guy over there. I can already tell that guy doesn't like me. Right. Envision. So, so it's almost like this inner game of tennis kind of thing, or Zen and the art of archery. Like you yeah. kind of picture it. You're up there. Everyone's yeah. laughing. What else? Uh, you got to. Uh... I mean, some people tell me again. It's like what I said earlier. Like. Some comedians will say um, they envision that they're giving this gift. This they they have the ability to give this gift of laughter to the audience, and that fuels them. You know, how they say there's uh, not a lot of difference between a CEO and a sociopath. <laughs> you know, how they say that. Yeah, yeah. Well, most CEOs and probably they talk are about most sociopathic uh, professions. I mean, I've seen entertainers in there, but I've never seen comics because really, what you're doing is you're not committing a crime. But you're manipulating in a small club, 120 people, in a theater, 1,000 people. You're really manipulating their minds. You're bringing them around to your point of view, whether they know it or not. And, I mean, it's like saying you can use this power for good or you can use this power for evil. So I decided to use it for good by becoming a stand-up comic. Otherwise, I would have done something else where I Ponzi schemed somebody out of every penny they had, right? (laughs) Plus, comics have no business sense. You know that. (laughs) Well, uh... Depends. Some of the ones with $60 million Netflix specials probably have more than the average person who performs down here. And by the way, (laughs) I'm going to tell you something about that. Dave Chappelle and Bill Burr. Love them both. Met them both. Love every word that comes out of their mouths. Every thought process, every word. Norm MacDonald last week said, if you don't love what the peerless one did on Sticks and Stones and you're a comic, quit. And he's right what they did i i agree yeah what they've done is they've taken that social justice telling eric and jay they've taken that social justice warrior car and they shoved it over the cliff well and also if you look at first off the the, the first sign is on rotten tomatoes he has a zero percent critic score right. and a 99 percent audience right. score right so all the articles that say this was unfunny and boring well look at the audience while he's talking they're 100 percent laughing second off they all were not were excited enough. In, in other words, right. they weren't bored. They gave him a rating on Rotten Tomatoes right. of ninety nine percent. So, but, so, so you know that every professional writer commenting is wrong, dead wrong. Vice, I love the I love the way the guy in Vice reviewed him and then got attacked by like one point one million people. That's when I went. Well, I'm watching Twitter and I'm going, "Holy shit, it's over! It's this close to being over." Then I watched Bill Burr's Paper Tiger the night it came out. Went, "It's over." It's over, thank God. It's over here. It's not over in Canada. Well, I don't even know. It, it, by over, you mean the 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 the. They've been uh, they they've they've gone too far. Yeah. Chappelle and Burr have taken the oxygen out of the room. You know what I mean for them. But in Canada, it's going to be a different story. Well, but but what's so interesting is, I feel like, uh, and this is I know we're sidetracking a little, but I'm I'm obsessed with this topic as well people i feel like people didn't even listen to dave Chappelle's special so for instance right. in the special he says i don't think michael jackson did it but then later on and so everyone hones on that later on he says i don't know if he did it or not right his whole point was a the guy died 10 years ago and all these cases were some of them had due process some of them were settled right but it's history and there's if you're going to spend 50 million on a documentary, there are many more important right. issues. So he's, that's really the kind of macro point he's making. He also points out something that I've been saying all along after seeing Leaving Neverland. 
their mothers were star fuckers. He had this reputation. Yeah, who leaves their kids? Who leaves their kids with this guy? Right. You know? And, and I feel like with every bit, the critics took the wrong sentence and blew it up. When and he, who are you? And you know this. Who are you to call this guy a hack? Who are you to even envision what it's like to stand up in front of 2,000 people and not worry about getting a laugh every 30 seconds and building a show from building block A to building block Z and getting off. Go fuck yourself. Right. And, and you know, the irony is the first joke he makes, essentially, the first real is joke he makes the audience. is, yeah, is, is saying this is what's going to happen. And it, and, and then he did a show, which you know when he was planning the show, because if you look at the last shows, you see he goes over the line, but he's careful. Y you know he was probably disgusted with himself oh. from that. And so he said, you know what? I'm just going to go beyond the line. And and the first 12 minutes of the show, he describes he's, how he's going to go beyond the line. And then he does it, and every all the critics fall for it. But the audience is laughing the whole time. The audience gets it. I got it. I got gay male friends, I got lesbian friends, and I know one transgender. I don't even want to talk about how we met. It's kind of <laughs> embarrassing. Uh, my gay friends hate the lesbians' guts, and the lesbians hate the gays. He nailed that. And that part at the end, the bonus part at the end, where, where the transgender says to him, uh, you know what, Dave, you're normalizing transgenders. That's what he's doing. He makes fun of everybody. Right, and, and don't forget, in his last special, he also says he's slept with a transgender. Right, he's, right. he's like a very open yeah. guy. He thinks about issues. You know, when he was, he was um, Will Smith had some show on Facebook about his bucket list where he wanted to, and one of the shows he wanted to do stand-up comedy. So he flies to Vegas to meet with Dave Chappelle to ask for advice. And Dave Chappelle says the most important thing, more interesting, more important to be interesting than funny. Right. And. Compelling. Right, and like you see so many people are just like, premise punchline premise punchline you don't get to know anything about them whereas dave Chappelle, he's not necessarily getting laughs every 15 seconds sometimes he slows it down sometimes it looks right. like he's thinking off into the air he's always interesting and then i feel actually he's uh correct me if i'm wrong for me he was an acquired taste and now he's my all-time favorite and the reason he was an acquired he taste, was an acquired taste in his 20s uh, and i i agree i because i was listening to him all, all along and uh but then you start to appreciate, man, he is doing an act out every single word. Like every yeah. single word, he's using a voice. He's doing these jerky motions. You know, he's, he's, he's twisting. He went from being a dick joker to a prophet. Yeah. You watched his evolution. And you know, same thing is true about Louis C.K. If you look around the 2006 period, he was always brilliant, even in the 90s when I would watch yeah. him. He was brilliant at absurdism. He was the best. And yep. he had he had his observations, but he would always take it in an absurdist route, which was brilliant. But when he started opening up about family, he, he and then dating, and then finally in the um 2017 special about, you know, uh his beliefs on various societal issues, he he, he also kind of went that profit route. Yep. I mean, you know, now and then they then now they say he's not allowed to have a career, but clearly if he were to do a tour in the US right now, he'd probably make $60 million, probably the biggest comedy tour ever. I think that's what's going to happen, by the way. I think Netflix or uh, Amazon are going to offer him a special. Yeah, and you know, uh, you, you don't even have to have an opinion on what he did or not. I mean, 
people have strong opinions either way. But the reality is he's, he's a comedic genius. It's like saying, oh, we're not allowed to listen to Beethoven um, because whatever. He you know what my thing is, James? Did you deny it? No, you didn't. You didn't deny it. He didn't deny it. He didn't deny it. People have to look at the time frames. Yeah. People have to look at every... Yeah. How much power did he have at these times? And again, I'm respectful. Anybody who has an opinion is allowed to have their own opinion. You don't like Louis C.K., you don't have to like him. You know, if you have your own predilections to being whatever, sexually, whatever, don't do it. Or, or do it, just do what you want. But Louis C.K. is like the best, just in terms of skills. Him and Dave Chappelle, I think, have all the skills. It's, you know what it is? If you can dig yourself a seven-foot hole and the audience is the one that wants to pull you out of it, you've done a masterful thing. Right, and that's hard. It's masterful. Because you have to, it's like you said, you're trying to manipulate, uh, and that, that does sound devious, but it's true. You're trying to manipulate, manipulate an audience to your point of view. So those comedians who can be who can say things that would normally be unlikable but still command the love of the audience, yeah. I think that is that is yeah. brilliant. So you have guys like Chappelle now, um, Louis C.K. on many of his jokes. Uh, an extreme case might be someone like Anthony Jeselnik, who specifically wants the audience to hate him, and then they yeah, love him. Yeah, but you him. know what? He's the next one. He's going to be the third nail in the coffin. That could be. I think it will be him. Uh, and then there's also, you know, T.J. Miller. If you're Netflix and you see Bill Burr and Dave Chappelle suddenly get more views than any other special you've ever done, you're going to look for the third one to do it. You're going to go, holy shit, this is amazing. I'm looking for, I need another guy like that or another woman. We need a woman to do it, by the way. We really do need a woman to do it. Yeah, who? I mean, there's a lot of funny I think women. Silverman's too, uh, I think Silverman's too thin-skinned to take the chance. Hmm. I like her. I think maybe Schumer. Yeah. People Schumer might be her during the election. I know. I know. But I think Schumer might be the one who could pull it off. But Sarah Silverman's uh not too deep down. Sarah Silverman gets hurt pretty easily. I don't think she could handle the uh Here here's what I would do if I was Schumer. This would be this would be what I would do. I would do a special called Covers and I would just cover other people's jokes like just repeat other people's jokes <laughs> for the whole entire thing like as if she was seinfeld as if she was louis ck dave Chappelle, yeah, yeah. chris rock yeah. and and just throw her in the face yeah. of everybody who just accuses her of, of everything yeah. by the way uh back on Chappelle and burr uh the thing i kept reading is courage 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 how much courage these guys showed now you're a pretty well-to-do guy Here's, uh, like I said, I love everything they say. I love everything they think. And I'd watch them forever. But when you're getting 75 mil, it's pretty easy to be courageous. Because you know that if you're told to go away forever, you got 75 mil, right? You right. got 75 mil. Let me explain this to you. Because I come from Canada, where the most I ever made when I was beating Letterman and Leno was $550,000 a year. Not the 20 million a year Letterman was making? I, I said to them, well, wait a minute. If we have a tenth of the population, can I have 3 million a year? And they laughed me right out of the room. Because God help you in Canada, if you ever come close to making what a vice president at the network makes, you're canceled. That's why I always made it a rule for myself, never ask for more money. If I was working at a job, never 
never try to bargain for more money than that right. person is making. It's impossible. Right. If you're selling a company, you have to only deal with the guy who owns yeah. the other company. You always, you can't, people can't help the right. psychology of money. Now, here's the other thing you don't know about Canada. Cause when I told Eric and Jay, they freaked, they couldn't believe it. You know, you think we have the same freedom of speech there you have here. We don't. There's a little thing called the human rights commission. And I can think of three comics who've been brought before the human rights commission for jokes they made in a 120 person comedy club. And as soon as it happened to them, they had to spend 25 grand on a lawyer. Somebody got, somebody got offended. In one case, it was a lesbian. The other case it was a transgender person. I can't remember who the other one was. They went to the human rights commission. And in one case they won and the comic had to pay them 30,000 bucks. Now that's insane. something we got. That is insane. That is something we got to worry about every time we set foot on a stage in Canada. I don't even think about it. So, so, uh, one time I, I made a joke about, uh, stealing one of my daughter's Adderall and, uh, some guy got up and just started yelling at me like, are you serious? And I'm like, what was that? He said, are you, are you seriously making fun of a disease? And I said to him, I'm sorry, you've been diagnosed with a completely fake disease, but, uh, <laughs> you know, you, you know, your girlfriend's looking the other way. She's embarrassed. You know, I don't know what you're going right. to do. And, but then he went up to each person who was laughing and said, why are you laughing? And then he went outside to complain to management about me. They thought they told him, uh, he owns the club. Uh. So the, uh, then he just left, but it, it is so easy to offend. But, but to your point, I was, I'm blaming myself because if I was doing my job of correctly controlling the audience, he wouldn't have been able to do that. And the other thing I said was like, that's when, you know, a professional in one of these cases would not have called a woman in the front row a dyke, just wouldn't have done it. Wouldn't have done it. Wouldn't have called her a dyke. You know, like if it was me, there were two women sitting together. He called them dykes. Hmm. He got charged. So somebody asked me about it. I said, okay, here's what I would have said. Wow. Two beautiful women like you. Here it is Saturday night. Uh, I have my assumptions and do you need a ride? I mean, I wouldn't have called them dykes. I would have called them dykes without calling them dykes. Hmm. You know, he's still doing it and the audience gets it. Just don't be so blunt. You so, know? so, you know, and again, this is going to, I'm going to bring it back to your, um, ideas about spontaneity and, and crowd work and so on. Dave Chappelle, part of his brilliance is, and, and Louisa K as well, but you see this most with Dave Chappelle. It almost seems like he's kind of just making it up on the fly. He's having this totally yeah. relaxed conversation with the audience. On that note, did you hear the cell phone ring? And he said, that guy's cell phone is gay. Did you see what Vice wrote? No. He planted a guy in the audience with a cell phone. Huh. Fuck you. You know? But But at the same time, Clearly those were written jokes because he did five shows with all the same right, jokes, right, more right, or less. Right, 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 right. But, but it always seems like he's talking straight to you. He's just making it up. He's just making these, hmm, now I'm going to say that. Like he's made, it seems like he's having a conversation as opposed to you can't see, you know, the, the, the guy behind the, uh, uh, the curtain, right. you know, who wrote all the and jokes. They and they criticized him for laughing. And I'm going, well, wait a minute. If he can't amuse himself, how's he supposed to amuse you? I'm watching as a pro going, the reason he's laughing is because he just thought of that right now and it made him laugh too. Yeah. And you know, when, when, uh, I always think for myself, I always think when I'm laughing on the stage, then I, if I'm enjoying it, then at least some large percentage of the audience yeah. is going to be enjoying it as well. And yeah. plus I think Dave Chappelle does 
use it tactically to signal to people to laugh. Like the way he hits his knee with the mic, sure. the way he backs up. These he's he's kind of like Pavlovian dogs. He's already trained them yeah. to laugh at those motions. Only thing I got to say about the special is there was no excuse for that pantsuit. The oh yeah. <laughs> I don't know what the hell that was. Uh, and he was he was so cool with the the uniforms <laughs> on the last specials. I was like really I I actually turned yeah. on Six and Stones really looking forward to seeing what he was gonna wear and what the closing song would be. That's why I didn't so understand. Cool. I didn't understand why the transgenders were upset. He's wearing a pantsuit. You know? Be happy. He's about to go. He's bringing parachute. the pantsuit back for you people. <laughs> but uh, uh, you know, again though, uh, with you, you really are doing kind of on the fly, thinking up these spontaneous jokes. What happens when you 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 bomb in those moments? Like do you have, like sometimes when I when I have to do crowd work. Now I'm going to give you the most obnoxious answer ever on that, James. Okay, you're gonna, okay. Let me guess. I don't know. <laughs> it's never happened. <laughs> I'll go along with it. I'll go along with it. Did you watch uh, Todd Barry's crowd work tour, yeah. which Louis C.K. produced, by the yeah, way? Yeah. Uh, Judah Friedlander had a great crowd work tour. Yeah. Andrew Schultz just released on YouTube crowd work tour, yeah. and it's about thirty six minutes. It's brilliant. He, these guys are are, are crowd work. I, I I admire most of all, and yet it's hardly ever uh, elevated to the status. And I'm of really stand-up. pissed off because I feel like I missed the boat on it. Netflix Canada better give me one of those. Yeah, do it. I want to just do it. do it and film it and give it to them. Yeah, or load it up do. on load it up on Amazon. You could self publish a special on uh-huh. Amazon. That's why I'm going into podcasting. I am so done with uh, network radio and television. I'm done with it. Well, the numbers on a good podcast are easily going to go be over like a lot of TV shows. Not only that, you're not being called into some 26 year old asshole's office after your show who's never been behind a microphone telling you what you did wrong. Right. Try that. Yeah. Like that whole thing with Stern and private parts with pig vomit. That's not a joke. That exists. Yeah. With these program directors. No, I, I know. I lived right next to, growing up in the New Jersey suburbs, I lived right next to pig vomit. So. Did you? Uh, yeah. You know, he wound up in Canada at the biggest rock station in the country, huh? That's where he oh, wound, ended oh, his career. I had no idea. That's where he ended his career. Huh. Yeah. Um, Which was so funny because at the time, that station was carrying Howard Stern in the morning. So this guy had to sit in his office and listen to Howard Stern every morning. And some mornings he was still dissing him. I thought that was hilarious. So, so, okay. You get the talk show. Uh, you're, are you, do you have a producer getting the guests? Like, what are you doing? What's your work day? We had three writers who were friends of mine. Um, what'd you need writers for? Uh, you know, there were sketches and stuff like that. And, uh, we all went and wrote the the few jokes we did out of the paper we wrote together. Those guys had the easiest job in the world, trust me. And <laughs> they were friends of mine, so they were always protected. No matter what they did that was inappropriate around the staff, they would come to me and go, this guy's got to go, nah, nah, I'll leave him where he is. One guy, Lawrence Morgenstern, I know guys down here know him. He's a legend in stand-up in Canada. Most inappropriate, harmless a-hole who ever lived. I made him the head writer just to make him happy, and I protected him every season. At the end of every season, the producers would go, he's got to go. No, he's not going. He's staying. Best thing that happened to me was the band and my band leader, Warren Isaacs. It was the first predominantly black band on late night television. And uh, I didn't even notice that until somebody pointed it out four years ago. But this guy and I had instant chemistry. The day he showed up to, for them to decide if I was gonna, we were going to hire him or not, I'd never met him before. So he knocked on the office door. He opened the door. I went not black enough and slammed the door in his face. <laughs> And I went back in the office, and that from that moment on, him and I were like that. You know, we gelled. Um, 
I used to say to them all the time, it winds up being 40 minutes. It's not rocket science. Uh, do you have writers writing monologue jokes for you? Yeah, we'd go up together and do them. I was always in on it. And uh, I would probably do three monologue jokes and talk to the crowd. Three monologue jokes and talk to the crowd. And they used to get furious if I skipped one of the monologue jokes. Lawrence Morgenstern used to crack me up because he would write a joke and he would go, we have to do it today. Well, no, we're on five nights a week. No, we have to do it today. It's got to be done today. If it's not done today, it's a disaster. I would go, no, we're doing it tomorrow. We don't have time to do it today. But uh, the guests were the problem. It's like Canadians, they would show up and go, well, where's the teleprompter? Where, where's the script? And I would go, what are you talking about? It's a late night talk show. Oh, it's real? Yeah, it's a real late night talk show. We've been on for two years and people would show up and go, where's the script? Where's the teleprompter? I go, there isn't one. Have you got any good stories you want to tell? And then that was the hardest part, getting the segment producers on board. I would go, go downstairs, ask them about something interesting that happened to them. Get them to tell the story. You don't have to tell me the story because I will listen to the story for the first time. And here's what I will do. I will make their story funny. That's all you got to do. And that was the hardest part, getting through their thick skulls, how to do that. What if they had no stories? What if they didn't want to share with the segment producer a story? I talked to them about their job and then come up with something there. But um, what was your worst experience? <laughs> Margaret I Atwood. Anybody, everybody <laughs> asked me, flies right out of my mouth. Margaret Atwood. Handmaid's Tale. There's a reason this woman sits in a dark corner by herself and types for 40 hours a week. Unbelievable. Well, Worst guest ever. What happened? Yes. No. How come you're a guy? That's what she said? Basically. Why isn't there a woman hosting this show? <laughs> you know? Mary J. Blige. Uh, she thought my band leader was the host and I was the band leader. When she found out the white guy was the host, she nearly walked. That was the worst. Brian Adams was the biggest asshole. Um, best guest was John Cretchen, our prime minister. Huh. Unbelievable. First off, uh, getting a prime minister on sitting, the show. Sitting prime minister. Right, the current prime minister. at the time. So, so obviously that was a huge validation for the show. Huge. You're, the network must have loved it. They loved it. And and were you nervous going in? Like this no, is a he big... was. He was. I couldn't believe how nervous he was. Every time we went to commercial, he was telling me how nervous he was. How would you make that interview funny? Uh, we came back and he said he was nervous. I said, I smell guest host. Don't worry about it. <laughs> and by the way, you're on your way to having the time. You know, because at the time his popularity was 20%. And he laughed it off. He was great. <laughs> he was a real guy. He was just a real person. I could tell he clawed his way to the top and didn't have that much education. You know, I like the guy. I like self-made people. And and you had uh, Louis C.K. on the show as well. Also great. Did great stand-up. Was fun in the chair. And uh, un unbelievably polite downstairs. That kind of threw me for a loop about how polite he was to everybody. That kind of threw me for a loop. Um, Nicolas Cage, who wanted to do it over again. He comes in. He was promoting wind talkers. You know, the one about the uh, Navajo, uh, Navajo tribe, uh, the Indians who were in the army, and they used uh, Navajo over the radios to fool the Japanese. Comes into promo in the movie. So I interview him. It went fine. We go downstairs. He goes, um, I didn't know this was such a good show. Can we do it over again? I'd like to bring my A game. I go, bring your A game. 
This thing is live to tape, and it's going to be on the air in about 15 minutes. Uh, good luck. It's not going to happen. Can I come back tomorrow? Yeah, you can come back tomorrow. And then some idiot producer, when he phones the next day, says he can't come back tomorrow. Oh, my God. I walk upstairs, and you gotta I got to fire that guy. The guy just did <laughs> con air. You, you said no. The other one was when John Travolta asked to fly in business class, and it was an extra 200 bucks, and one of our producers turned him down. I go, seriously? All right, but that's interesting, actually. Why, like, that's such an obvious yes, that why do you think some people, uh, and, and probably this producer was a smart guy, you hired him, he's probably educated, he's been in the business. What, what triggered this stupidity? In because him? of my budget was 28 grand a night. <laughs> <laughs> the biggest concern. I would take it out of my pocket. To... I said I would have. And the biggest thing to everybody was, we can't go over 28. We just cannot go. And 28 included my salary. I mean, I, I think it was Letterman's green room budget. I think really I, I was doing it on Letterman's green room budget. Right. Like I was going, we're doing this show for 115000 bucks a week, five nights a week. And you know what I would get from the network? Do you know how much this show is costing? hundred and fifteen grand a week. In other words, their their response was, that's too much money. Well, how much were they making on advertising? I don't know. I never knew. See, you should have wouldn't tell that. you. I tried to find out all the time. But you could probably have figured what was equivalent airtime. I was doing airtime. spots and figuring it out on my own time, and I asked one of the producers to do it, and they got blocked by the salespeople. And, uh, and when it came out that our ratings were higher than Letterman and Leno, I, there were two other networks in the country that were carrying Letterman and Leno. I said to the vice president of sales, I hope you're finding out how much they're charging for a spot on Letterman and Leno and we're charging more. Oh, I never even thought of that. Oh my God. And I was under constant pressure. So do you, so in 2003, you, you stopped with CTV, you moved over to, um, global, right, biggest mistake global. I ever made. Right. So I was going to ask if that was, I mean, you had a good thing going with CTV. You'd been six years running, seven years running. They wouldn't put me, they wouldn't leave me on all year. And it wasn't a problem for me starting over again after being off the air for four months, but it was a problem for everybody else to gel and get used to their job again. So my thing was, I want to be on all summer. I want to be off for three weeks in August like Letterman and Leno do, but I want to be on all year. Could they have maybe given you like a variety show or something to keep you occupied? They or? offered me a special once and I said, no, I don't want to do that. It's not what I do. Yeah. I, I do this. The other thing you got to worry about in Canada, James, is overexposure. If you're the guy who's on everything, people get sick of you real fast. Huh. I said, my thing has to be this show and this show only. This is where I want people to come to see me, and it's the only place they're going to see me. So, I don't want to do anything else. Do you think um, kind of, I guess there was publicity around you moving from CTV to Global. Do you think that hurt when you relaunched, you know, the Mike Bullard yeah. show on, on Global? What hurt was... Uh, the the guy who was the uh, owner and founder of Global is the one who wanted me to come. And then uh, he died oh, no. a month before I went on the air, and that, the two dumbed-down uh, versions of him took over. So, so By the way, it was a classic. Uh, Chris Cuomo might have got mad about being called Fredo, but this was classic Michael and Fredo. The youngest brother was in charge of the network. The oldest brother wasn't. So I used to call them Michael and Fredo behind their backs. And it was just bad news. Then they made the older brother the executive producer of my show. And I knew I was in big trouble because he comes up to me two weeks before we debut and he goes, I want you to sing the monologue. I go, what? He goes, I want you to sing it. 
I go, what do you mean, like show tunes? He goes, yeah, I want you to sing the jokes. We'll have the band back you up. No one's ever done that. And I go, let me explain to you why no one's ever done that. <laughs> okay, and, and I guess it, it doesn't need to be said why you couldn't go back to CTV. Probably there was a bridge burned or Yeah, whatever. bridge burned, but I don't mind burning bridges. You know what I mean? I don't mind. The, the deal with me is you can be holding a bag with a million bucks in it, and uh, if I don't like what you want me to do for it, I'm not doing it. Do you, do you miss, even though you said you wouldn't do it again, do you miss those times? Like, it sounds like it was a great, fun time. Doing I this miss thing. the beginning and I miss the middle. I don't miss the end. Hmm. You know, I don't miss the end because, uh, too many tensions. Things happened. Like the person who didn't change was me. And that's weird. And plus when you're the one who's supposed to have the drug and alcohol problem and be pampered by everybody. And you're the one who doesn't have it, and you're the one propping up, up other people who do. Plus, you got a show to do at night. You kind of go, "Shit, man, this is exhausting." You know, yeah. and an open door policy. I never should have had it. I understand why people who host late night talk shows eventually go nuts and become really insular. I un I understood completely why Letterman behaved the way he did, and I understood completely why Leno pretended to be the most open guy in the world, but wasn't why is that because everybody comes to you with every little concern they have and they they can't get it resolved by the producer so they come and knock on your door and bitch at you for 15 minutes so how do you solve the problem do you have to delegate to do you have to train the producer i used to, to go listen man you're you got to take care of this and then finally they wanted to have a meeting and they had a meeting and told everybody they could no longer come to my door and then the crew viewed it as well mike doesn't want to talk to us anymore so then I had to have another meeting and go, listen, I do want to talk to you. I know your names. I know your kids' names. I know your wives. I just don't want to talk to you about the fact that they didn't give you a pillow for your seat on your crane cam. I don't want to talk to you about that. I want to talk to you about your family, your friends, anything. But I don't want to talk to you about uh, the fact that you're a cable puller and somebody stepped on your cord last night. I don't give a shit, you know? Here's the thing. I'm the little circus pony. When the light comes on, I'm supposed to make everything all right. When the light goes off, I'm supposed to go home just like you. So, so the Mike Bullard show on global ran for, geez, I wish they called it something else. <laughs> ran <laughs> for how long it lasted. Uh, what did it do? Like a hundred episodes? Yeah. A hundred episodes. Which is like half a year or less than that. Less than that. But by and, the way, a hundred episodes of anything in Canada is still huge. I yeah. did 1200 at CTV. But even 100 at Global was some kind of record. And then since then, you've been doing radio and stand-up. Yeah. You've been, you've been having fun? Been yeah, you know what? On, mostly, yeah. Mostly, yeah. Yeah, mostly, yeah. But um, like I told you, I was real excited to come here, and I'm real excited to be doing my own podcast because uh, I've done two of them. And I'm sure you've done other things, too. I never felt this liberated. Like, it's liberating. Yeah, it's great. It's, a it's You could do whatever you want. It's the weirdest feeling in the world. Like, I had a guy in uh, who was Jimmy Hoffa's driver. The guy's 85 years old. By the way, it's still in post-production because we're trying to get the clicking of his dentures out. But uh, fascinating stories. The guy let the guy go on and on and on and on. Didn't have to worry about somebody saying, hey, we got to take a break. Right. Did an hour and a half with the guy. It flew by. And the stories were amazing. Plus... 
this this I feel like there's things that happen in a podcast that don't happen in a radio show or a TV show. One is you can go in depth. You can't can't talk for an hour with someone on a TV show no. or a radio show. The other thing is uh it's you could have on whoever you want that satisfies your curiosity. You could you're allowed to be curious. You don't have to just like respond to um you know so, some promotional event that's happening and now the guy's doing the rounds of, of shows like you're referring to, like you'll see somebody on Letterman and Leno and Kimmel yeah. or whatever. Yeah. And, and, and then also you're actually providing a service to the audience. Where you're also coming closer to what Stern does. Like people talk about how masterful Stern is at interviewing, right? Yeah. But basically what it comes down to is he just, he kind of treats those interviews like a podcast. Yeah. He's that's curious. He's legitimately curious. Yeah. Like what the the you read the new book uh, Howard Stern comes again. Um, it's it's just just transcripts of a bunch of his interviews and just reading those you get to see this is a master at work. It's like kind of a master class in interviewing. Yeah. It's a brilliant book and uh, yeah he's he's the best interviewer out there. It's funny I read uh, what did I read Larry King's book on how to interview people before I started doing the talk show. I was reading everything I could get my hands on on that particular subject. I didn't get anything out of the Larry King book. But I read Howard Stern's book with the interviews too, just like you did. And I went, wow, man, this is, this is pretty amazing stuff. This is almost like a text, you know? Yeah. Ever since I watched private parts in, what was it? Like uh 97, I've wanted to do essentially a podcast. Even yeah. back then I was doing, as 1997, I had a job where I would wander the streets of New York city at three in the morning and interview any prostitute drug dealer or whatever I could find. Right. And put the results up on the web for HBO. It was like a web show even back then. And that was probably the funnest job I ever had. And it was inspired by going to see private parts and also inspired by the show uh, or the book, The Late Shift, which, which yeah. described the late night wars. Which, by the way, uh, hit a lot closer to home than either Leno or Letterman uh, admitted, I think. Oh, I'm sure. Yeah. I think so. Uh, Bill Carter is a great, great writer. Yeah. I love all this stuff. Yeah. Uh, so you have a podcast now. Talk, tell us about that. U uh, two podcast with Mike Bullard, kind of a play on me too, I guess. I didn't come up with hashtag U two. Yeah, hashtag U two, and uh, it's in Toronto. It's uh, it's in a great studio space. It's kind of like this, really, and uh, it's just people. I mean, it, the great thing about it is, it's just people on that I find interesting. Ben Dichter is the uh, producer, and he, he he will run people by me, and I'll go, you know what? That person sounds kind of interesting. And I've, ne I've seen that person before, but I've never seen all sides of that person, and that's what intrigues me. Let's get that person in. How many do I have in the can now, too? Oh, he's not even here? Yeah. Great. That's great. You know what? That's what I call a wonderful <laughs> partnership. Guy doesn't even stick around for the whole podcast. <laughs> how, many, how many have I got in the can? Two? Two. Two. Yeah, and a guy I'm interviewing next week is the guy who uh, started a new political party in Canada, and everybody scared scared as hell of him, Maxine Bernier. And I'm going to be interviewing him next week. And the reason I'm looking forward to it is that I'm not a journalist. I'm not going to be unfailingly polite with a politician. Like, I want to get down and dirty with this guy and find out what he's really about and what he's going to do for me. Like I tell you that I had the prime minister, uh, what, four years ago on my radio show and I got in such deep shit. I thought I was going to lose my job because he came on on election day and I said to him, he started talking about all these issues. I go, when's the last time you filled up your own car <laughs> and you wouldn't have believed the heat I got after, but the public that day saved my ass. Mm. 
because they all went, it's about time somebody asked that question. He could not answer the question, and he did not know how much gas was a liter. Yeah, that's Which like... Which um, we have metric system, by the way. You're the only country in the world that doesn't have the metric system. We have the correct system. That's why. <laughs> yeah. yeah. Uh, what, what was the thing with George Bush once where they asked him about uh, shopping, and I, I forget, he didn't really know how to like move George a shopping George Bush Senior, right? Yeah, yeah, the senior. Yeah, I, I don't remember. It was something... Now, what are the price of diapers or something like that? But what about Bill Cosby not knowing how to use an ATM? You know By the way, that, that interview, my polls went down 3% that day. Thank you very much. Your what? My polls in my riding went down really? 3%. Hey, can I go to the bathroom? Yeah, I don't yeah. want to confess to anything, well, but well, i got to go to the bathroom. <laughs> well, well, we're, we're, we're about to finish. Can I, can I do a, a closing comment? You bet, whatever you want. So, Mike Bullard, check out his YouTube podcast. Uh, I know... Uh, you know, you've had this 30 year career in, in comedy, which you've, you've translated into talk shows, radio shows, uh, you've reinvented your career so many times. It's, it's, it's inspirational. You've, you've done what you've wanted every step of the way. And thank you for the lessons on crowd work. Hey man, thanks for having me. And shout out to Aaron Berg for like really making this happen. Like he put it all together. I can't tell you how thrilled that my name was uttered in a New York comedy club to a bunch of people who have no idea who I am. Last night, he was like, <laughs> is James still here? Mike Bullard's in town. <laughs> <laughs> Which meant nothing to anybody. It's okay. It was only like eight people in the club. Yeah, okay. <laughs> Aaron Berg headlining, his dream come true. <laughs> <laughs> All right. Thanks, thanks a lot, buddy. Mike. Life is a highway, and on it there will be many chicken sandwiches. But there's only one crispy. so go ahead and hit the turn signal if you know about this juicy gem of a detour.